Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 219. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I am so excited to introduce a very special guest, Kevin Clemens. Kevin, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm strapped in and ready to go. All right. I love it when my guests show up ready to go. Kevin Clemens is an award-winning writer and magazine editor. He's been a staff member at Automobile and European Car Magazines, and he's written columns for numerous other publications and major automotive companies. Kevin has written eight books, and he's received the Ken Purdy Award for Excellence in Automotive Journalism. In 2006, he started the independent publishing company DeMontreville Press in Lake Elmo, Minnesota, that specializes in the publication of automotive fiction and the republishing of out-of-print automotive titles. And in 2011, he set a national land speed record at Bonneville on an electric motorcycle that he built in his home garage, and he returned to the Salt Flats and set more records in an electric sidecar motorcycle. I can't wait to hear more about that project. Kevin, I've told our listeners a little bit about you. Would you please take a moment and share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and of course your passion, automobiles, and it sounds like electric motorcycles too. Sure, Mark. You know, it's kind of interesting. I grew up in Florida, and I grew up during the 60s and early 70s, primarily uh, during the time when the space program was so huge. And I was a kid who was just all over the space program. I mean, I watched the Apollo 11, Apollo 13, Apollo uh, 14 and 15 launches uh, from the Cape. This was something I was convinced when I grew up, I was going to be one of those those guys sitting at NASA wearing the uh, the short sleeve polyester shirt and the clip-on <laughs> tie, yeah. launching us into the stars. Well, by the time I graduated in the, uh, the late 70s, that had pretty much dried up. We weren't really going to the stars anymore. We were just going into low Earth orbit with things like the shuttle. And so 
Um, my second great passion had been cars and automobiles, and, and I kind of can attribute that way back to when I was in high school. I, I read a book, found it at the library, and it was called Sideways to Sydney by Innes Ireland. And Innes was a, uh, a very well-known Formula One racer in the in the early 60s. Oh, yeah. He later became a uh, an editor at Road and Track magazine, but he wrote this book about driving from um, from London to Sydney, Australia, in the 1968 World, uh, 1968 rally from London to Sydney, and this just fascinated me that somebody could drive a car that far with two other mates and have a great time and have such an adventure. And so, I sort of got involved in rallying, and I went, uh, I, I drove in a lot of rallies in the Northeast, and and um, got heavily involved in, in automotive things, and joined the the, the car club in the uh, the college I was at at RPI. And I decided, you know, maybe there was something I could do in the auto industry. Well, unfortunately, at the early 80s, the auto industry in the U.S. wasn't doing very well. So I got a job at Michelin Tire uh, as, a, as an engineer and a, and a researcher and a scientist. But at the same time, I started racing SCCA and, and still ran some rallies and started having a good time with cars and, and buying and selling and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Had a great time at Michelin, but realized after a while that you know, you could be a tire designer for one company for a long period of time, but you could never actually, you know, own your own company or do your own thing doing that. So I kind of moved myself into public relations and got to know a lot of uh, automotive journalists. And when um, Automobile Magazine's uh, technical editor went to Car and Driver, I got a call from David E. Davis, uh, who said to me, I want you to be my, my automotive editor and uh, technical editor. Wow. And I said, well, I don't really know anything about writing. And he said, that, that doesn't really matter. We can fix that part. You just have to make sure that we do everything that's technically correct in the, in the magazine. And so over a period of uh, 10 years, I worked at Automobile Magazine, and, and they taught me everything I needed to know about writing, which... Fortunately, they were very good at um, <laughs> teaching me. And, uh, you know, eventually um, that became sort of the new part of my career. I, I like to say I've had seven or eight careers. That was uh, at least one of two or three of them. Driving all over, or traveling all over the world, driving amazing cars, meeting interesting people. And then you'd come back and you'd write a story and, and uh, they'd pay you for it. It was about the best job ever. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, during that period of time, I also uh, met the woman who became my wife and uh, started following her career around the country. And so that meant it was difficult to work as a, as a staff member anymore. So I became a freelance author and, and did that for uh, for quite a few years after that. Mm-hmm. And then you got into writing books as well. What launched that career? <laughs> Well, that was kind of, um, we moved to Minnesota uh, about 11 years ago, and um, it's kind of difficult to do uh, daily automotive journalism from Minnesota, from the Twin Cities, when most of it's taking place in places like L.A. and and Detroit. But one of the things I did notice is that there was a lot of automotive book publishing that was taking place in the Twin Cities. And um, I got to know uh, Tom Worth, who actually started Motor Books way back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually is the reason there's so much automotive publishing in the Twin Cities. And I got to know him, and he kind of became my mentor for forming a, starting a publishing company. And I started writing books first for other people, and then I realized that the way book publishing is today the real way to make any money at it, and there's not a lot of money in book publishing anyway, but the real way to make money is to, to publish your own work. So that's when I started uh, my small book publishing company, the Montreal Press, and started working in that. But uh, it was really, it was just an opportunity to still write about cars, even though I was in a place where there wasn't a lot of automotive journalism taking place. Oh, fantastic. Well, I love your journey in so many ways, and we're going to learn more about some of the other things you're involved with. 
right now. But as we continue on this journey of yours, I always like to start by asking my guest for a success quote. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Kevin, take the wheel. Well, I'm going to give you two quotes, actually, because one of them is from um, David E. Davis was was truly one of my biggest mentors. And, and um, it was a, tra- a tragedy that he, he died. I won't say so young because he was he was already, you know, a senior citizen when he died, but he always said no boring cars. And that was his biggest <laughs> thing about writing about cars. You should never write about boring cars. And and I agree with that. You know, cars should be exciting and fun. Otherwise, what's the point? But the other quote I want to share with you is um, the one that Theodore Roosevelt gave in, in 1910 of the speech in, in Paris at the Sorbonne. And it's it's my favorite quote because it, it sort of encapsulates how I've sort of tried to live my at least my car life, if not my my somewhat strangely eclectic career. <laughs> the quote goes, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. I love that. And it goes on. But that to me is, um, and you should look it up on Google if you're really interested, but it is the point, of course, that I've always said if you're if you're a racer or if you're doing these big rallies or if you're going to Bonneville, getting to the start line is the hardest thing. Getting to the start is harder than anything you're going to have to do when you're actually running the race because that takes all of the effort. That takes all of the skill. That takes all of the, the commitment to be able to get um, to the point where you can actually be uh, one of the, the competitors. And it's easy to be on the outside and say, well, look how slow he's going or look how you know he, his car broke or look how he didn't put – Try doing it yourself, and then you can then you can be a critic. But until you've done it yourself, you can't be a critic. Yes, I love that quote. It's great, and I, I do a weekly blog here at Cars Yeah, and the, the blog that went out today was uh, pretty much about that same thing. So uh, we'll save that for uh, the listeners to go check out on the website. Great quotes, both of those. I appreciate you sharing those. And yeah, David E. Davis, what a great man. We lost a real treasure there. Uh, loved all the work that he did over the years, and uh, have his books and wonderful guy. I wish I could have worked with him like like you did. Fantastic. I was truly uh, so lucky to, to have him, you know, just call me basically out of the blue and said, I, I want you to be my technical editor. Oh, gosh, yes. And I, I thought about it for about, you know, two-tenths of a second and said, yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Absolutely. I'll take that challenge on. Would you share with me a story that instigated your passion for cars? I'd love to hear about that pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy. Yeah, you know... <laughs> It's kind of hard to, to point at those those one pivotal moments, but I think maybe part of it was, and I'll come back to that rally business. Um, in the early you know, mid seventies, I was going to school at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in, in Troy, New York, and we had a quite a large car club there. And uh, I found out that John Buffum, who even then was a, who was, of course, many time a national rally champion, even back then was was a pretty big deal in rallying. I mean, everybody knew who he was. I found out he was having a rally school at uh, in New Hampshire at the Loudon Motorsports Park, which is now New Hampshire International Speedway. They've changed the track significantly, but it was in the sort of the infield. And I had a rally car then. I had a, an old Ford, uh, oh, it was actually a Mercury Capri with a two-liter engine and roll cage and everything else. And so, oh, cool. so I signed up for, for the first ever John Buffum Rally School. And, and I went there. And uh, yeah, I was intimidated because, frankly, there were all these guys there who I had only read about in the magazines who were there with their rally cars. And, and I did okay. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't the fastest, but I wasn't by any means the slowest. I think on one stage I was the second fastest with my beat-up old Capri. 
And I suddenly realized that, you know, maybe this was something I could do. Maybe this, I, maybe I wasn't just some sort of, you know, really mediocre driver. Maybe I could actually do this if I, if I, you know, put any effort into it. And so I never actually put the effort in to become, you know, a professional racing driver, but I always felt like I had that skill level, that skill set that was there, whatever that, that is, that in, inherent um, ability. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was, that kind of informed me for the rest of my life because I never felt like, well, I can't do it. I mean, I've never felt like I can't be the guy doing it. I always felt like, yeah, I have that, that basic skill set. I, I could do it if I need to. And that let me understand when I was working with um, professional drivers that when I was working at Michelin to create racing and performance attires, that I could understand the language they were speaking, that I would understand. And the same when I became a, a professional automotive journalist, I could talk to racers, I could talk to engineers, I could speak the language, and I could really understand what it is they were talking about. It, well, I wasn't looking from the outside in. I was actually from the inside talking to them. That was a, that was a pivotal moment. I think so. Very cool. And rally driving, oh my gosh, uh, just wild and crazy. I did some vintage racing and done a bunch of lapping days but uh, rally driving something i've never never done it looks like it's just uh controlled chaos at every second well what happened for me is i, I went from rally driving which was just the most fun ever to, but extremely expensive because you end up traveling all over the country to do it and it's um and it beats up the car so badly right i went to SCCA racing which back in when i was doing it was pretty much demolition derby and if you didn't have a an auto body shop is one of your sponsors. You couldn't really do it more than one week in a row. <laughs> and then I went into vintage racing and I've been vintage racing a variety of different cars for well over 30 years now. And, and, uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, if your, if your budget can't handle the, uh, the, the, the stress of rallying, then you, you have to move into other areas where you can still have fun. And, and certainly the, the vintage racing has gotten a lot more expensive in the last uh, 10 years or so, but it, I've had an awful lot of fun racing old cars. It's fun because you get to find out what it was like to race those cars when they were when they were as they really were. You get to find you get to compare yourself with, you know, how maybe the guys back who were your heroes drove those cars. It is great fun, absolutely. Kevin, what I'd love to do now is look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood and ask you to share a huge challenge or a great failure that you faced in your career. But the most important part of this has to do with how you overcame that situation and what you learned from it. Well, I keep coming back to rallying. I don't mean to, but I will this time too. We did the Peking to Paris rally in 2007. A friend of mine from Chicago uh, invited me to go with him in his uh, 1929 Chrysler. Wow. Chrysler Model 72 uh, Roadster. Or Model 75. Model 75 Roadster. Big honking car. Uh, unfortunately, the car had been in an accident in Africa. It had rolled over in a previous rally and fairly significantly damaged. Well, they had done a lot of work making it look pretty, but we found out the first day, for example, that the engine mounts were broken. Mm. So we had to fix those. And the next day we found out something else was broken. Basically, of the 35 days of the event, 32 of them, something was majorly wrong with the car. And so every single day was just a challenge to get to keep the car going and keep it running. And at one point we were in the middle of the Gobi Desert with, with only one wheel steering because we'd completely broken the tie rod on one side. And we'd smash the exhaust system. It was completely gone. We were running low on fuel. And, and then you get to the point where you just say, okay, that's it. I quit. I quit. I can't do this anymore. I absolutely quit. I'm done. And then you realize it doesn't matter if you quit because you still have to get the car to someplace where you can get it out of the country. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're 50 miles probably from anybody else. So you can quit all you want, but you still got to do the job. 
And I think I learned from that that that's something you can quit all you want, but you still got to do the job. So you may as well not quit. You may as well just get on with it and get it done. I love that story. That's absolutely fantastic. What a great one. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and share with me one of your aha moments in your career. It's one of those times when you realized, you know what? I think this idea I have has some merit. And tell us the steps you took to turn your aha moment into your success. Well, you know, uh, we went to we went to Bonneville as kind of, on kind of a lark. I had I had just written a book in 2007 on alternative fuels and hybrid vehicles, and um, I had been to Bonneville back in the in the uh, mid 80s with Michelin to help out a Mazda team that were going over 200 miles an hour, and, and we were successful with them. I always felt like I had sort of missed uh, out that there was there was some unfinished business for me to go to Bonneville and do something myself there. And so the, by sheer coincidence, I had also restored an old 175cc um, Scrambler Honda motorcycle. And I looked up the records for 175cc production class, and they were only about 70 miles an hour. And I thought, well, I can make this little Honda go 70 miles an hour. I started thinking about it. I said, well, I just wrote that book about alternative fuels and hybrid vehicles. I really probably should put my money where my mouth is. So I looked and found that all of the records for, or most of the records for electric motorcycles were, were wide open. And so I started looking around my shop and here was the parts bike left over from my, uh, from my setting up, from my restoring this 175 Honda. And I said, you, you get to be an electric motorcycle. <laughs> and it tried to shy away, but it couldn't do it fast <laughs> enough. So, so I used that frame and I grabbed some, just some parts off the shelf. And I went uh, on eBay and bought you know, a motor and some batteries and some controllers and just, you know, pretty much just anything I could find and threw it all together. And my wife and I, you know, dragged it out in a little trailer out to Bonneville and we set a national land speed record. And it was like, wow. really? We set a national land speed record? So cool. Sure enough, we did. We had a great time. And I brought the, the little bike back, and I thought that was going to be the end of it. Well, suddenly I was on the new, local news, and I was being interviewed by the newspaper, and everybody wanted to know if I was going to start building electric motorcycles. And I realized that there was a lot of interest in electric vehicles because this was right in that 2008, 2007, 2000, or, I'm sorry, 2010, 2011 timeframe when people were starting to understand electrics might be coming. And I thought, here's an opportunity for me to maybe show electric cars aren't golf carts and boring and, and they can be fun and they can be exciting. So, you know, I thought, well, let's see if we can't do something even better with it. So the next year, we, I took a, a Kawasaki Ninja 250 and took it all apart, and put electric, much more sophisticated electric drive and much better batteries and put as much effort into, into building what I thought I really could build out of it. And we set four world records and set two national records with it. And I said, you know, I'm on to something here because all of a sudden I was getting press all over the country with this bike even though we weren't really going that fast, but we were, we were in the 70, 80 mile an hour range, but we were setting records with something that nobody had done before with electric vehicles. And I thought to myself, this is something that it's not only the, the, the adults who were really interested, it was kids who were really interested. And I realized suddenly that the whole, whole idea that you could take electric vehicles and make them into something for the next generation came to me. And that's when we started talking to high school kids and we started uh, being involved with uh, education, environmental education issues, uh, initiatives with uh, the electric vehicles. And that's been going on ever since. And it's been a lot of fun. So I think the aha moment was, wow, people really care about these things, even though we've only, you know, gone at fairly modest speed, we've come back from Bonneville and we've gotten a lot of press out of it. Well, congratulations on that. What an awesome story. And 
opportunities coming and you taking advantage of those. You're like a, a mini Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe. Very cool. How about proudest entrepreneurial moments or moments in your career? Is there one in particular that really stands out in your mind? Again, I'll give you two. One is the um, the Ken Purdy Award. Uh, winning. I won that from the first book that I, I wrote. It was a, a compilation of columns that I had done. Just um, We called it Motorola for a Car Guy Soul. The first one, I did, did end up doing three versions of that book, volumes of that book. But the first one won the Ken Purdy Award. And the Ken Purdy Award is won by significantly important writers in automotive journalism. And I just felt so incredibly honored to be included in that group. And, and Ken Purdy himself was just such a, a legend and, and sort of helped define what automotive journalism was really going to be. And, and so I, that was that was a huge moment for me. The other was uh, when I was working at Automobile Magazine, just a couple of years into it, I came across a story that that I ended up writing that kind of changed the world in some ways. Um, I was the first person to really write about the dangers for children for uh, rear-facing child seats uh, for front airbags. I came across that story when I was visiting some some friends of mine at General Motors, and then I talked to the people at Umtree at University of Michigan, and uh, we came up with a, a lot of uh, background information that just hadn't been published about how dangerous those were. And, and we were then we ended up going on Good Morning America and being interviewed by uh, Katie Couric, and you know all that sort of um, stuff came about. But it was really just the thought that here I was doing actual real journalism. I mean, automotive journalism a lot of times is entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with that. But here I was actually doing a, a real automotive journalism story. I still, to this day, feel very proud that, that we were able to get that information out. And then it, it, from there, it just blossomed. Everybody had stories about it, and it became huge. Oh, wow. Well, two great stories. I've been fortunate to have several guests here on Cars Yeah who won the Ken Purdy Award, and congratulations for that. But I love the story about discovering something that could save lives, especially children. Yeah, it was it was a, a you know it was a, a moment when I realized that journalism can really make a difference. Absolutely, <laughs> great. Let's have a little bit of fun here. What was your first really special vehicle? And if you could share a memory with me that you had with that car or bike, whatever it was. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit difficult to choose one here. I, I try not to buy boring cars. I said no boring cars at the beginning. So. <laughs> That's why I say the first, <laughs> the first. My very first car was a Berkeley. I mean, I probably don't even know what a, a Berkeley is. It's a little two-seat special um, that was made in England. Fiberglass uh, sports car. Mine had the two-cylinder Excelsior 328cc uh, motorcycle engine in it. I mean, and Berkeleys were, okay, they were a little bit slow, but um, they actually did beat the Bug Eyes in Monza, and I think it was in 59 in the 12-hour race or something like that. So they had a, had a real history. But I had found this thing lying on the side of the road in Florida and, and uh, traded the shortwave radio for it. <laughs> and we managed to get it running using Harley-Davidson parts in the Excelsior engine and, I don't know, all kinds of crazy stuff. But that was my first car. So, you know, everybody's first car has to be their most special one, right? I mean, that, that because <laughs> it gave you mobility. Well, in my case, mobility was a two-stroke 328cc Excelsior motor, so it wasn't that mobile. But, you know, it was fun, and, and it <laughs> was different. Uh, the second car after that was an MG Midget, and the next car after that was that rally car I was talking about, that Ford uh, Mercury Capri. And then I got into a bunch of different Saabs. I've probably had a dozen Saabs. So, you know, but really special car, the one that was maybe more special than any other one, was probably the Lotus Super 7 I had. I had a 64 Lotus Super 7 with a 1500 Cosworth motor and all the close ratio box and all that kind of stuff. And I actually traded a perfectly good, beautiful Austin Healey 3000 
perfectly wonderful running car for this pile of bits that was a loaded Super 7. <laughs> and I can't help it. It just was that I had to have a loaded Super 7, and I'd been looking for one all of my uh, my short life at that time. And, and here was my big, beautiful Healy, and it, I brought home this, this pile of lawn chair furniture, which became a loaded Super 7. So, <laughs> but that car was just so special. It just, you know, they just made so few of them, and it was a real one, and just to have had that in my in my repertoire of automobiles. I've had over, I can't even remember how many cars, 130, 140 cars. Oh, my like. goodness. <laughs> yeah, you got to have fun with cars for sure. How about seller's remorse? Since you've had so many cars, again, this might be difficult, but is there one car you really wish you had back? The Lotus 7 for sure, but I had a Morgan Plus 4 for a while too that was, I just really enjoyed that car. And I sold it. I sold it for a really stupid reason. I, when I was going to do the Around the World Rally in 2000 uh, with my 59 Mercedes, and I had this strange idea that I wasn't going to come back from this. And that's a really dumb thing to, to think. But I, I had this idea. And so for some reason, I decided I should sell off stuff so that my wife wouldn't have to. And so I sold my Jaguar XK150 and my Morgan Plus 4. And then, of course, I came back perfectly fine and, and five or six years later told my wife that story and, and she just about hit the ceiling. So uh, yeah. why would I care about selling your cars if you didn't come back? Yeah. So she was right. And, and it was a stupid thing to do. But, you know, sometimes you do stupid things. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, that's an interesting story. But uh, the, yeah, Morgan Fours are beautiful little cars. And, yeah, you've had some really interesting vehicles. How about current projects? Is there something you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up? Yeah, it's again Bonneville. Mm -hmm. um, we have this, uh, I, I bought, so we went to Bonneville with solo motorcycles for, for several years and set some records with the electric ones. And I got in my mind that it would be fun to take a sidecar bike there. Now, sidecar bikes, when you think about them, they're really kind of dumb because nobody in their right mind would build such an asymmetric vehicle nowadays. But, of course, at the turn of the last century, early 1900s, that's when sidecars came about. And there there exists a class for them. So I started looking into them, and, and I found this this Baker sidecar that had been built um, for the Isle of Man TT by a ma man named Tony Baker, who uh, lives in England. He's a, he's a legend at the Isle of Man motorcycle race and mm -hmm. uh, for, for his sidecars. And he built this bike uh, with a rear-engine Formula 1 bike the same year that they outlawed Formula 1 bikes and went to Formula 2 bikes. And so this bike was then shipped to the U.S., and a man named Rick Murray uh, did seven national championships with it as a road racing bike. I mean, the bike was amazingly successful. And then it kicked around for a while, and I found it and dragged it home and put an electric motor in it. And last year, we took it to Bonneville, and the weather was horrible, and we had just all kinds of issues. And we did set a, a land speed record with it, national record, but it wasn't a very successful one. We had planned to run twin motors, and we didn't get that working. So in any case, I had set the record with it, but we knew we could do a lot more. And then I got invited to, to bring it to New Zealand so for a big electric vehicle conference. And so we shipped the bike to New Zealand last uh, fall, and we had this big conference. And while we were there, I, I went and visited the University of Canterbury's mechanical engineering department, and I started chatting with them about, you know, what we could do to make the bike faster. And they were talking about, you know, we could do this and we could do that. And we could make aerodynamic models and we could do wind tunnel tests and we could do computational fluid dynamics and using our supercomputer. And they said, but, you know, we really would need a, need a PhD student to do all of that. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. I said, I, I've got a master's in, in engineering. Maybe I could be that PhD yeah, student. Yeah, maybe me. Maybe me. And they said, sure, why not? And so wow. that car is now, that bike has now become not only my, my land speed record project, it's also become my PhD project. So oh my I gosh. get to work 
six months a year in the U.S., building the bike, taking it to Bonneville, doing the testing, getting all the data. Then I get to go back to New Zealand for six months a year and use their supercomputer and their wind tunnels and everything else and try to make it go faster. So, And I get a Ph.D. when I'm all done and a world record. So, oh, my you gosh. Know, you have figured life out. That has me pretty excited, although it is, uh, it's a, it's a large amount of work because we've got to get the twin motor drive working. We've got to get the computation of fluid dynamics. Tomorrow we're going and doing uh, laser scans of the bike so we can get the 3D models working. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting, though. It's exciting to be able to work with this technology and to, to work with these people who have this understanding of – they have an understanding of how to make the, the machinery or the, the, the fluid dynamics work. And to learn from them how to apply that to my specific asymmetric, strangely bizarre sidecar motorcycle is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> you, my friend, have figured out some secrets to life, I think. <laughs> Fantastic. I might have. I, uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, sounds like a wonderful, wonderful project. Can't wait to see how this all comes together out there on the salt flats. I've had many guests here on Cars Yeah who are involved with the adventures at Bonneville, including Danny Thompson. Of course, oh my gosh! Brought, yeah, yeah, of course, brought the challenge. He's bringing the Challenger two back that his father's so famous for, and uh, many photographers who go out there and shoot. So, uh, yeah, fantastic place. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Kevin. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be, and why? Wow, that's a tough question. Yeah, and it's really well, more um, about not the car you wish you were, how you perceive yourself. Yeah, um, I'm going to say I'm a. a Early 60s Land Rover Series 2. Shorty, <laughs> short wheelbase. Short okay. wheelbase. And why, why is that? <laughs> ah, you know, because I've, I've actually owned one and restored one. And they're not very fast, but they're very, very consistent. They just keep going. They don't stop for very much of anything. I've run 10 marathons in my life, and I've never run one very fast. But I never stop either. I mean, it's it's all that sort of psychological. I mean, I'd say 80% of running a marathon is in your head. It's the psychological thing that you can make it to the finish regardless of how tough it feels right now. And and I think that's when I think of when I think of that, I think of a Series 2 Land Rover, just those the little beast of a car and just they go anywhere. And yeah, I think that's probably what it would be. Uh, it's kind of a, I never would have thought that would have been how I would have answered it. I would have preferred to say some sort of sports car or something. Well, but, uh, that's why I no. asked the question, and I, and I love this question so much because of that reason, is if people are honest with the way they answer of how they really perceive yourself. So uh, you did a great job with that one. I'll give you an A-plus on that one, okay? Oh, thanks. I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I feel happy about it, but that's my answer. <laughs> that's all right. We're about to enter the last lap, but before we do, here's a word from our sponsor and Cars yeah guest, Dwight Knowlton. Carpe Viem. Seize the road. It's the motto at CarpeGear.com, where you'll find the Little Red Racing Car, an award-winning book written and illustrated by passionate car guy Dwight Knowlton. It's a spectacular way to introduce children to the love of cars. It's an inspirational award winner, and Yahoo Autos calls it the best kids' car book ever. Plus, it's printed in the USA. I may be an adult, but this kid loves the Little Red Racing Car. Dwight is finishing a second book in collaboration with Sir Sterling Moss about the story of his record-breaking win of the 1955 Mille Miglia. Check out Dwight's Carpe Viem brand where you can find his book, shirts, and more that embrace his seize-the-road philosophy. Enjoy Carpe Viem at carpegear.com and be sure to sign up for his newsletter while you're there. That's carpegear.com, C-A-R-P-E-gear.com. 
All right, we're back, Kevin, and we're entering the last lap. And this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions, and you're going to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Buy low, sell high. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Or the other one that says, if the top goes down, the price goes up. (laughs) I like that one. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? I think it's perseverance. You got to just stick at it. Keep at it no matter what. Absolutely. Perseverance, tenacity are true keys to entrepreneurs in life. That's for sure. Do you have a resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? And I realize there are so many out there these days with the World Wide Web and things like that. But is there one in particular you keep finding yourself going back to? You know, I'm a big fan of automotive art. And I'm going to put in a plug here for my friend Mike Jekko, who's an automotive automotive artist who just does amazing work. And I have several of his paintings right now in my, my office. So go to his website. You can look it up online. And uh, boy, his, his artwork is amazing. And he loves doing commissions for people. I would agree. And I haven't had Mike on the show yet, but he has agreed to be on the show. And his last name is J-E-K-O-T, spelled a little right. unique. But uh, yeah, check it out. We'll put that on your show notes page. I love what he's doing, and I can't wait to get him on the show. Yeah. Would you share a book that you've really enjoyed with the listeners? I know you've written many books of your own, and we'll list those on your show notes page. But is there one in particular you think the Cars Yow listeners should set their eyes to? Well, in addition to my books, I'll say that um, I did mention Sideways to Sydney by Ennis Ireland, which is currently out of print, but it's just an amazing book. But the other book that I'm going to say is Peking to Paris. It was written in 1908 oh, yes. by Luigi Barzini, and it's just an amazing book. Um, I, I republished it with my, my publishing company. There's a couple of different versions available, but it's uh, it's just a lovely book, beautifully written. And the things they went to to drive from Beijing to uh, Paris in, in 1908 were just incredible. That is an outstanding book. I've had several guests here recommend that book, and I would highly recommend it to all of the Car Show listeners because it is an incredible story. It's just mind-blowing. So, well, you can find links to all these resources at carsyacom slash Kevin Clemens. All right, Kevin, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a real doozy for some people, especially a guy who's had over 100-plus cars. If you could have only one collector car in your garage... But don't worry about the cost because I'm writing the check today. What would that one vehicle be and why? No doubt. Type 35 Bugatti. Oh, okay. I could I could see that. What is it about that Bugatti you love so much? You know, everybody always asks me what's the best car, what car, you know, everybody asks me this question a lot being an automotive journalist. The Type 35 was an amazing automobile. First of all, it was a successful Grand Prix and sports car. From the mid-20s right into the mid-30s, it was uh, state-of-the-art for all that period of time. It's so jewel-like and so beautiful. The, ma- the machine is beautifully constructed, beautifully made, wonderful engineering. It had its, it had its uh, issues, of course, like any car, but it was just such a evocative period, that 20s to 30s, when you could make anything, but if you made it beautifully, it was, it was just that much better. And, and that's just, to me, it's just an astounding automobile. Oh, beautiful car. I have a friend who lives here in Gig Harbor, where I live, Washington, that has one of those. And it is a magical little machine. It's it's like a little work of art in so many ways. And the fact that they could run both Grand Prix and sports cars with the same with the same car is just amazing to me. Yes, yes. And uh, have you had the pleasure of visiting the Champ Museum in France with all the Bugattis? I have. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I, I did the pilgrimage there. It's yes. amazing. It's, uh, yeah, it's a magical place as well. So 
Great choice, Kevin. I love that car. It's fantastic. You've taken me on a great ride today, and I knew you would, and I've so enjoyed your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Out listeners and with me. Is there one parting piece of guidance you'd like to offer before you drive off into the sunset in that Type 35 Bugatti? Well, I'll just come back to it because when the Type 35 breaks down, you just can't give up. you got to just keep working on trying to make it get to wherever it is you're going. And I mean, as an as an automobile enthusiast, that's what you have to do is is just don't don't look at, at I can't do it. Look at how can I do it? I love it. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your business? Um, if they're interested in the the land speed record stuff specifically, they can go to uh, the velocityworkshop.com. Or if they're interested specifically in me, they can go to www.kevinclemens.com. Great. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything we've talked about today at Kevin's show notes page on carsyeah.com slash Kevin Clemens. Just put Kevin in the search box and his show notes page will pop right up. Kevin, thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with me today. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.